Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. As many as one in ten people in the UK are neurodiverse, with conditions including autism, dyslexia, dyspraxia and ADHD. But neurodiverse people struggle to find work. Only 16% of adults with autism, for example, have a full-time job. At the same time, the cybersecurity industry faces a significant and growing skills shortage. Globally, there could be as many as 3.5 million unfilled jobs by next year. Could a better approach to neurodiversity in this industry help to solve both problems? Neurodiverse people often have skills including pattern matching and attention to detail that lend themselves to cybersecurity roles. But what can we do to recruit and to develop neurodiverse staff? Industry body Crest recently researched exactly this. And joining us to discuss the findings is Gemma Moore, a Crest GB executive member and a director of the security consultants Cyberis. So neurodiversity is coming into focus, I think, everywhere, not just in the cybersecurity industry. Um, but there are there's a massive skills shortage that we have in the cybersecurity industry. And um, a lot of uh, what many companies are doing is looking at how you can target uh, different groups who might not normally be attracted um, into the cybersecurity industry um, to bring talent on board. Um, you know, neurodiversity, we go back to, um, you know, what is neurodiversity? What, does, what do we mean by neurodiversity? Um, it's something that HR professionals are becoming more aware of. People's brains work differently. So most people are neurotypical, like myself. My brain functions how most of other people's brains also function. And therefore, my brain works the way that most of society expects it to. Um, so we have a world that's kind of designed by consensus by what neurotypical people think and do. And often what we expect in any situation is what we think a neurotypical person would do or say or feel. Um, so everybody's got strengths and challenges, um, but a diverse workforce and a diverse um, population is actually very beneficial for cybersecurity. If you if you sort of take break things down in terms of cybersecurity all the way to what we actually do at a really basic level within the cybersecurity industry, we're looking at security and cyber resilience and we are um, hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. And where we're planning for the worst, that means being able to think through and imagine all the different ways in which things could go wrong and then put controls in place to try and stop those things going wrong or mitigate the damage or manage the risk. So if you are have a sort of population of people, all of whom think the same way, you have this danger of running into groupthink where you actually don't think about all the scenarios that might apply. And you might not cover all of the things that you need to cover because you're thinking in one particular way. Um, and ne the neurodiverse people, um, first of all, have uh, strengths and challenges like everybody else. And I think there is a, a certainly an acceptance that in some areas, the strengths of people who have uh, sort of neurodiverse traits um, are complementary to those of us who are neurotypical. So we get better coverage effectively of all the different things that might go wrong, how they might go wrong, and different coverage of the skills that we can use to make them, you know, go right. 
So there's been some research on it. I think um, Cybersecurity Ventures did a study where they decided that there were going to be approximately 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs by 2021. Um, the ESG and IWSA did another story where they, uh, or another survey rather, um, where they came up with the skills shortage in the cybersecurity industry um, exacerbating the number of data breaches. And I think um, items related to skills shortages, such as lack of adequate training of non-technical employees um, and lack of adequate cybersecurity staff were the key contributing factors to an increase in data breaches. So there is a skill shortage anecdotally, um, particularly within penetration testing, you know, people are always looking for staff and other areas of the cybersecurity industry are, you know, similarly affected. It is difficult to find uh, skilled, talented people and it's difficult to keep them. And certainly the industry is starting to do a lot more work around diversity and also looking at alternative career paths. So there is progress being made, but particularly looking at neurodiversity, how much potential is there to plug the gap by having a more diverse approach to recruitment? Is neurodiverse recruitment something that really can offer help here? I would like to think so. I hope so. There, there's lots that can be done with uh, with recruitment that we don't do, you know, as an industry particularly very well at the moment. If you think about most job adverts, what we have is um, a, a list of uh, requirements that everybody's got to meet and we don't really say whether they're desired or whether they're required. Um, we have interview situations that can be really intimidating and can generate an awful lot of anxiety amongst uh, people with neurodiverse conditions. So um, on a changing the approach to a recruitment means sort of changing um, the way that you view recruitment. It's really easy if you are a uh, neurotypical person writing a job description and organizing a recruitment round to sit down, write out a list of things that you want from your employee, um, write a job advert the way that you would like to read a job advert, arrange an interview the way that you would like to be interviewed, which is often sort of panel situation where you're, um, you know, just sitting there and being interviewed by people that you don't know by strangers. Um, and it's it's very easy to just set up a recruitment process that will only attract people that are already like you. So unconscious bias um, has an impact there as well. Um, in terms of things that sort of concrete things that you can do. So we, there are lots of different areas of um, neurodiversity. Um, and obviously, one approach isn't necessarily going to attract every type of neurodiverse person. There's some generic things that you can do. Um, you can emphasize neurodiversity as part of your um, organization's brand. So if you explicitly call that out um, as having, you know, the fact that you have an inclusive environment, a diverse workforce already, and that you recognize and value these things, that's going to make you more attractive as an employer to someone who has a neurodiverse condition. Um, make the role descriptions inclusive, make them clear, make them precise. Um, it's got to be easy for people to identify both the core skills that are absolutely required um, and the um, those that are maybe not required, but, you know, could be trained. Um, and if you have a statement of diversity with those types of things, um, you can make a difference because if you explicitly acknowledge that you're aware of neurodiverse 
people that you are aware that their needs might vary compared to neurotypical people, um, you're, you're effectively signposting the fact that they can talk to you about this. And you have to be willing to have some flexibility in the recruitment process so that you are um, encouraging people to say, actually, um, could I please have this accommodation or that accommodation in order to support me? People with um, ADHD, for example, um, they might um, have difficulty with time management. Um, they might appear distracted. They might appear impatient. Um, and something, if, if you're doing an interview with someone who has ADHD, um, you know, you should be aware of these things. Um, let's look at um, autism, for example. Um, someone who is um, autistic might have difficulty maintaining eye contact for a long period of time. And yet we set up these panel interviews where actually um, eye contact across a table is something that's required um, or expected. Um, so you may find that just sort of changing the way that you structure an interview um, and offering support and an open door for people to talk about what they need is enough to try and address that when you get to the interview stage. Um, People with dyslexia, for example, if you have a written exercise in a an interview, um, and but you don't have um, or you don't provide your candidates with the ability to sort of customise the environment that they're writing in, uh, people with dyslexia could be disadvantaged by that. And, and when I say you don't allow them to customise um, the environment that they're working in, it's things like being able to change the background colour or the font that's being used, um, using a spell check, using a grammar checker as part of this written exercise. Those are things that someone with dyslexia might rely on completely. Um, so there are lots of small accommodations, but the biggest thing in terms of recruitment is being conscious that neurodiversity exists, being conscious um, that the way that you do things might introduce unconscious bias and being willing to be flexible and actually support candidates coming through. If you don't support the candidates coming through, you're at risk of um, sort of rejecting really talented people um, just because they don't think the same way as you. And actually, when you lay those measures out in that way, none of them actually sound that difficult to do. So is that something that organisations could implement fairly easily? It's not going to cost a lot of money. Yeah, I think so. I think there is a lot that can be done that people aren't doing because they're not aware it's a problem. Um, so unconscious bias is, um, for all types of diversity, unconscious bias is something that inevitably just creeps in. Um, I mean, if you look at um, offices, for example, if you look at offices, if you, if you in a company were going to design an office environment, let's say you had three people in a team tasked with designing an office environment and all three of them were neurotypical extroverts. Now they might, they'd have a conversation amongst themselves and they might disagree on certain points, but they would probably come up with uh, an office environment where people were face-to-face -face with other people, where it was open, where there was lots of talking and distraction and noise, uh, because it's the type of environment that they would be comfortable in themselves and they would generally have an agreement that that is what a good office environment is. Because you, they don't uh, they haven't considered because they haven't sought the views of people who are, for example, neurodiverse, they're not accounting for those needs in, in what they're doing. It's not, I don't think, um, you know, in that situation, you've got people who are consciously excluding the neurodiverse, but because they're not part of the conversation at that stage, things that are put in place simply don't account for their needs. And it happens not just with neurodiversity, but with gender diversity as well. You will find that systems that are designed by men 
don't necessarily take into account the needs of women because they're not part of the conversation. And that's why getting neurodiverse people involved in the conversation with neurotypical people is so important. Can you break down the type of conditions that people have and the impact they can have on the workplace? I'll start by saying, as a neurotypical person, um, the first thing you should do when you're talking to anyone who's neurodiverse is actually ask them what their experience is and what they are, (laughs) what they experience, because, um, you know, everybody is different. And even within these conditions um, that, you know, fall under the neurodiverse banner, everyone's experience is different and unique. Um, as having these these um, conditions. Um, the conditions that we were talking about during the Crest workshop specifically um, were ADHD. So um, with ADHD or people with ADHD, um, they can um, find themselves easily distracted. They can be impulsive. Um, they might be hyperactive. They might have poor memory. If they get bored, um, they might have real trouble actually completing a task if it's boring. But there's, there's a flip side to that. So people with ADHD um, can be prone to hyperfocusing. So they have um, great intense focus on things that are interesting to them. Um, if you consider sort of restlessness and boredom, you can turn that around. You can find that people with ADHD are actually really creative and really innovative, and they're always looking at the cutting edge. And obviously in cybersecurity, the cutting edge is where the fun is. Um, for a lot of people, change can be a challenging thing. But for someone with ADHD, it might be the energizing and stimulating thing that they need. Uh, autism is something that's uh, that has a lot of attention at the moment. Um, possibly one to two percent of the population uh, is autistic. Um, people with autism, uh, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding about um, autism and what the autistic spectrum looks like. Um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people who are neurotypical think of the autism spectrum as a straight line, and it's not a straight line at all. It is a spectrum of all sorts of different sort of behaviours um, and thought patterns, all of which manifest into somebody who is, you know, different to the rest of the population. Um, it's not, you know, someone who is um, sort of low functioning at one end and high functioning at the other. Uh, every People with autism are, are hugely, hugely diverse themselves. You'll have some people, for example, on sen- who have um, sensory processing disorders who um, do find um, sort of noise, light, uh, excessive touch very distressing. But on the other hand, you'll also have people with autism who seek sensory input and, you know, seek light, seek noise, seek touch um, as a way of managing their anxiety. You'll find some people with autism have um, quite serious motor function disorders, whereas other people with autism actually aren't bothered by motor function problems um, hardly at all. You'll find um, some people with autism find social situations very difficult and try to avoid them. Other people with autism actually might thrive on social contact and seek it out actively. So you can't generalise autism at all um, because it's such a diverse spectrum um, of experience. Um, within that. Um, but anxiety is something that's pretty universal, I think uh, it will be fair to say, with uh, with autism. Um, and pe- most people with autism um, find that change causes anxiety. Now, that's one of the things that, you know, you have to be mindful of if you're going to make um, if you're going to make a workforce friendly for somebody who is autistic, uh, actually managing their expectations around things can be really, really helpful for managing their anxiety, which means that they will be more successful. Um, 
Dyslexia is another very, very common neurodiverse condition. Um, it's possibly um, the most common of all learning disabilities. I think that around 10% of the population suffers from dyslexia. Um, and with dyslexia, um, you may find that um, sort of written tasks are difficult and that people find it difficult to um, use words to communicate in the same way that a neurotypical person would find uh, communication. But the thing about people with dyslexia is they're often really good at pattern spotting and uh, grasping concepts and connecting events. So in terms of, you know, analysing the big picture, you know, dyslexia can be something that's really, really um, useful um, in cybersecurity. Um, dyspraxia is another uh, neurodiverse condition that actually um, there's a lot of research about children with dyspraxia, um, but not an awful lot of research about how it affects um, adults in the workplace. So that's something that um, we don't necessarily know an awful lot about. There's some researchers have identified um, sort of problem solving abilities with new ideas um, and different ways of tackling problems um, that people who are dyspraxic come up with. Um, that in itself, again, just emphasizes that different people with different thought patterns come up with different solutions to problems. And the more solutions you have to adopt, uh, the more solutions you have to counter problems, the better. You've mentioned some specifics in terms of adjustments to the recruitment process and adjustments to the workplace, but how does an organization go about creating a, a top-down, even if that's the right place to start, but a an organization-wide approach to being open to people with neurodiverse backgrounds? The absolute first thing that an organisation needs to do is step back, take a good look at itself, look around inside and say, actually, is there anyone neurodiverse here? Because if there isn't, you possibly have a problem that you need to address. Um, neurodiversity training for all employees can be really valuable uh, because it, it opens the door to talk about it. I, I said before, unconscious bias is a is a real problem, um, and you know, I I myself am, as I said many times already, I'm neurotypical, so I don't have the lived experience of someone who is neurodiverse. Um, I have, you know, friends who are neurodiverse, and when it comes to what they need and what they experience, you know, I will ask them what they're comfortable with. I will ask them, uh, you know, what we need to do to make sure that they are happy in a particular situation, and being aware that you need to ask those questions is the thing that uh, neurodiversity training can help you with. Um, it's important when, you, um, when you're implementing projects, when you're making decisions, when you're doing recruitment, um, that you have a culture of flexibility and that you have a culture of openness so that uh, an employee who needs an accommodation, who needs something um, doing and often as, as you mentioned Stephen a lot of these things are um, quite trivial they're, they're easy to do um, but you need the door open so that people will ask for them I think there are a lot of neurodiverse people who do not mention that they are neurodiverse to their employers because they do not want to be singled out as different or they do they worry they might be discriminated against or seen as less or seen as disabled for example um, that is a problem um, in some employers. It has to come from a sort of inclusive culture and an inclusive culture means an open culture and it means promoting awareness. And not being willing to disclose a condition is certainly an issue because um, the conditions that you've described um, primarily are not visible. Exactly. 
employers do struggle sometimes with non-visible uh, conditions that they have to make adjustments for. And of course, you might choose for reasons, as you said, potential discrimination, holding you back in your career, and just um, other reasons. If you feel that you've adjusted your life reasonably well, um, but then you come up against a problem in the workforce, that you may not be prepared in your own mind to have that conversation with the employer and you may worry quite understandably about the consequences of opening up that conversation. So is that something where employers can actually take steps to to make it clearer that they are willing to make adjustments? Every employer should be you know, actively looking at having a neurodiversity policy where there is part of their sort of company policy set that says, you know, actually, we're aware these conditions exist. Um, this is the process for asking for reasonable adjustments. This is the process for reporting um, any behaviour that's, you know, in contrary to this this policy and this process. Um, not having a policy, obviously, that's not enough in isolation. You have to live the policy. Um, but there's a lot there's a lot that can be done there. The other issue with neurodiversity, of course, is that there's lots of people that don't even know that they're neurodiverse. Um, my best friend um, from school, you know, I've known her for 30 odd years now. Um, she was diagnosed with autism at 37. So she's lived um, all of her life until 37, not knowing that she was autistic. But as soon as she found out that she was autistic, so many of the experiences in her life, the stresses that she'd had at work, the things that she had been through suddenly made sense to her. Um, but had she known earlier on, had she been aware that that was a possibility and actually been diagnosed as neurodiverse, she would have been able to take more control, more ownership of um asking for accommodations, looking for things that would have made her life easier, rather than just sort of accepting that everyone else works a little bit differently than she does, and that she doesn't, you know, she's just going to find things tough. She didn't even know. And I think there's some of that too. And there is also, certainly around autism, there is also quite a lot of evidence that females tend to disguise the condition more than males. Uh, they're more able to mimic behaviours and therefore actually sometimes convince themselves as much as anybody else that there isn't anything going on and therefore they don't need adjustments. Whereas actually once you allow those adjustments, it's quite liberating. Absolutely. And uh, that has been her experience. You know, Now she knows and she adjusts things. There is a whole level of anxiety in her life that's just been lifted away that was just overhead that didn't need to be there. So thinking about the IT security industry specifically, what can we do to particularly encourage people into the workplace and then to develop once they're there, given that there are particular stresses and rhythms of work that are not necessarily peculiar to IT security, but certainly uh, common within IT security workplaces, which aren't always going to be easy to accommodate or easy for people to work around? number one is awareness and making sure that you know you've got that supportive culture that's that's the first thing there is I think a lot more work to be done in terms of um, putting together cybersecurity specific career guides for people who are um, neurodiverse and signposting effectively the steps that people who are neuro neurodiverse can take through their careers um, I think there is uh, a lot that can be done with people who are already in the industry who are neurodiverse in terms of talking about their own experiences, what has helped them, what has hindered them. Um, and actually, um, a bit like we have uh, a sort of push to get more, more women visible in cybersecurity, getting more people who are neurodiverse visible in cybersecurity and talking about their experiences will help, first of all, open up the conversation amongst um people who are in cybersecurity um, about this this topic and secondly provide sort of role models for those who are neurodiverse thinking about getting into it. As an industry we need to um, look at 
different ways of recruiting. So we we tend to follow the very traditional um, interview panel type process. Um, we possibly need to look at uh, changing that as, as an industry entirely, maybe having, I don't know, work placements or something less formal than a formal, you know, panel interview. Uh, perhaps even something, as, you know, there, there are even things as simple as um, rather than sitting at a desk having an interview, if you had a walking interview, you wouldn't have to make eye contact. We've got to be a bit creative, basically, if we want the talent. In, in cybersecurity, um, the strengths of neurodiverse people can be incredibly, incredibly valuable. Um, if we sort of count them out by just tailoring things for neurotypical people, we're losing a huge talent pool. There's such a clear case for diversity of thought in improving your performance in cybersecurity. Um, and it's not just in terms of, um, you know, what you're actually delivering as a cybersecurity um, professional. It's it's about financial performance as well. I mean, there is, I don't know if there is any evidence for um, neurodiverse um, workforces improving the performance of um firms uh, financially. However, I know that there's evidence that uh, diversity in the boardroom in terms of sort of gender, ethnicity, background does improve um, the financial performance of companies. Um, I would love to see some research on that. Um, but I, I suspect given that diversity, other types of diversity improves financial performance of companies, I would absolutely expect neurodiversity within a business to be instrumental in improving the performance of the business. Because uh, when you look at the facts and you look at what you're doing and you look at the diversity of thought you can bring into things, uh, it, it's just a no-brainer to me. And there are some attributes that neurodiverse communities have which are actually very, very helpful in cybersecurity. Could you just run through some of those in terms of what we've seen, what evidence we've seen about the type of work that people can carry out and how they're effective? People with... Uh, Autism. A lot of people with uh, who are autistic um, have um, a very, very great interest in sort of deep research into particular topics, and that can make people who are autistic um, incredibly good at doing sort of in-depth technical research because they cover all the bases. They cover um, all sorts of things that you might not think about as your as a neurotypical, um, you know, people who are autistic tend to be very detail oriented. They've got um, a lot of focus. They've got a lot of integrity. They can absorb large amounts of information. Um, they enjoy complex tasks. Um, they have a thirst for knowledge um, that, it, that, you know, neurotypical people sometimes can't match. Um, and if you apply that to what you need to do in cybersecurity, well, it's hugely valuable, absolutely hugely valuable. Um, there's no way to, to put it the other way. Um, people with dyslexia, as I said before, can be really great at putting together puzzles, um, doing interconnected reasoning. So they tend to excel um, where you've got fields that combine lots of different perspectives in a sort of interdisciplinary approach because they've got that extra um, ability to spot patterns and grasp new concepts. People with uh, ADHD, I think I said before, have this ability to hyper-focus and they can be really creative, really um, innovative in the way that they approach things uh, because they're always looking for the next new thing. And it's kind of obvious in cybersecurity where that would benefit you. 
And of course, there is also the question of helping people to develop a career in the industry. So there is work being done around neurodiversity and recruitment. There is that's helping people to get a job. But what should or what can IT security organisations do to help people not just get a job, but actually to have a career? If you want neurodiverse people to stay with you and to have a career, you need to have an open conversation with those neurodiverse people about the adjustments that they need and about the way of working and what they what they want from their careers. Um, if you want um, people to to stay, to be happy, you have to engage them in the process of growing the business. So if you have outcomes that you want to achieve from, from a business, which of course you do, um, rather than saying, putting people in a, in a box of this is your job and this is what you will do, uh, businesses should be focusing on this is the outcome that I want for the business and then having a conversation with their staff saying, right, how can you help me achieve this outcome for the business? Um, what, what is it that you can bring that helps us achieve this outcome for the business? How, how can you do that? How can you help that? Um, including people in the conversation about what they bring and how they bring it is the key to um, making people feel valued, making people feel listened to. Um, and ultimately, that's what makes people want to stay working with you and develop their career with you. If you don't accommodate the sort of basic needs and basic adjustments that neurodiverse people need in order to feel safe and happy in their workplace, uh, you won't retain them. Gemma Moore from Crest on how simple but effective measures can help to recruit and more importantly to retain a more diverse workforce and so lead to better security. That's all though for this episode of Security Insights. We'll be back with our next programme in two weeks time on securityinsights.co.uk where you can also listen to past episodes. Meanwhile, thank you for listening.